Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Dr. Susan Comavez. Susan is Professor Emerita at the University of Maryland. She's also past president of the Council for Advancement of Standards in Higher Education and the American College Personnel Association, was vice president of two colleges, and is the author-editor of a dozen books, including Student Services, Exploring Leadership, Leadership for a Better World, and the Handbook for Student Leadership Development. She's executive editor of the inaugural New Directions and Student Leadership Series, and she was a member of the teams that developed Learning Reconsidered, the ACPA NASPA Competencies, the Social Change Model of Leadership Development, the Relational Leadership Model, the International Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership, and the Leadership Identity Development Grounded Theory. She is co-founder of the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs and a former member of the Board of Directors of the International Leadership Association. Dr. Comavez is also a recipient of both the ACPA and NASPA Outstanding Research Awards and the ACPA Lifetime Achievement Award. Welcome, Susan. Welcome, Miles. Thank you. Good to talk to you again. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, I'm exhausted from just reading your, your bio there. I, I would imagine that, tired me out, too. <laughs> I would imagine that you're tired from, uh, from living a life that would lead to that bio. So. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're going to get started with our first segment here, which is rapid fire. So I am going to ask uh, a few big, silly questions and limit Susan to 30-second responses. Um, so the first question is, your son is a rocket scientist. You have more knowledge than most on the actual content in that field. So do you ever say, this isn't rocket science? <laughs> I used to say it all the time meaning we can figure this out. You know, if something looks hard, we can still do it. But then I tried to read the first page of his master's thesis, and I couldn't even get through two paragraphs. So <laughs> I, <laughs> and his doctoral dissertation, which he just finished, is even harder. Um, but I like the phrase meaning, uh, okay, this is not impossible. We can figure it out. However, rocket science is probably pretty impossible. <laughs> Probably probably a little too much. Okay, so uh, I know you're a fan. Can you explain the cultural phenomenon of adult coloring books? <laughs> this is my hidden secret. Um, I think it's just magic. I think it's a creative, stress-releasing kind of hobby for anyone who um, likes creativity and color and shapes and all that, and I've just loved it. Um, if you don't want to knit or jog or do something else and want to do something fun like when you're watching TV or whatever, um, I think it's just great. So I, had, I started last September after seeing that it was the number one, two, three, and four best-selling books on Amazon. I thought there's got to be something to this, and the Mandela's that books are just wonderful. So I would recommend it to somebody if they have time when they sit and aren't doing something productive coloring is a good thing in that space. Uh, it's probably a probably a better way to sort of multitask while you're watching TV than like checking your email from work and getting stressed about it. That's right. So. And, and, and we need to put that stuff away. And, and this is a chance to do that. I can also do it in the car. So we do like to take road trips. And I can with a lap board and um, those books still do that driving cross country. So I've enjoyed it in lots of places. Okay. Great. So I do know that you that you enjoy a good road trip. As a matter of fact, when I reached out to you to uh, to do this podcast, you said you were on a road trip to Colorado in a Mustang. So, uh, <laughs> so what is? I think this is a very important road trip question. What is your favorite gas station snack? <laughs> Nothing healthy or good for you. So for me, it would be Pringles and a Coke Zero. 
Pringles. See, everybody has an answer to that. You know, everybody has an idea of what they want when they go into the yep. gas station. Yep. I, uh, well, and when I say everyone, I mean all Americans probably. Uh, in so, some gas yeah. stations, you want to get in and out of fast. So you have like Pringles and the Coke. That's true, yeah. Well, and Pringles is general enough that you're almost going to you're going to have it at pretty much every gas station. Sometimes my gas station needs are a little too specific. Like I really want a Snapple and I can't always get them. That's right. Um, <laughs> um so I know you just got back from uh from a trip to visit your grandson. So what's the best thing about being your grandmother? Oh, I think there's so many. You could have to talk more than 30 seconds. But um, (laughs) I have two granddaughters that are teenagers, and it's just been fun watching them develop their style and their personalities and now to talk with them both about careers. And finally that they're teenagers, I feel like I have something I can contribute. When they were like four, you know, it was a little harder. But now that they're teenagers talking about colleges and careers, it's really been fun. And one of them is a young woman who wants to go into STEM, which is very exciting. Oh, is that right? yeah, and then our son and his wife have recently had this gorgeous little two-year-old boy. So I'm just back from that trip, and that means um, lots of giggles and playing blocks and reading books again and again and again and again. Uh, it's delightful to see the, the sponge-like stage of being two years old where everything he takes in, uh, he, he's learning from. You can just see his brain expanding. Um, counting from 1 to 15 and missing 13 and adding two 14s. And, you know, it's just great. It was very, very exciting, but lots of hugs and kisses and um, reading books. Yeah, yeah. But you it's have inter- a toddler, too. You know what I mean. I do. I do. Yeah, it's interesting. My uh, So both of my, uh, my, my mom and my sister are uh, primarily elementary school uh, teachers, and uh, they come to town and they're just so much more useful than me. It's interesting that you mentioned that about your, your teenage granddaughters because I, uh, I would really, I, I feel like I will be more useful later in life to him than I am now. You know, I mean, I can meet basic needs, but, you know, like I'm trained to be better later. <laughs> you hope so. Although I do think it helped. Just the novelty of having Grammy be there helped our son and his daughter have time to unpack boxes and get settled in their new house. They have just moved. And so the novelty of Grammy um, entertained him. And that was mm. Yeah. Great. So we'll transition now to our next segment, which is Higher Ed, Two Truths and a Lie. I think that this activity may be the most student affairs thing in the world. We're combining nerddom and icebreakers here. Uh, so I'm going to provide two stories from Higher Ed Current Events and one lie, and Susan's going to have to parse out the lie. So the theme this time around is private school eccentricities. So, Susan, are you ready for your three options? No. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So, this week, the University of Southern California hired a full-time facility dog to assist with student wellness. The the black golden doodle named Beauregard Tirebiter works out of the Student Health Center. Professor Tirebiter holds office hours and has a Twitter account. So, that is your first option. Your next option is a recent branding update to remove the capitalization of the U in university from Quinnipiac's, uh, a fit, a Quinnipiac University's official logo. Students recently launched a petition to recapitalize the U. VP of Public Affairs Lynn Bushnell responded to the petition with, and I quote, we have no intentions of looking back, only forward as we work to improve Quinnipiac's stature and visibility in the higher education community. 
So that's an option. And then your final option is, though the institution isn't named for the poet, the English department faculty are pushing to rename the Memorial Building on Whitman College's campus Democratic, Democratic Vistas in honor of Walt's 1974 classic collection of poetry. In a statement released via the English department's newsletter, Professor Scott Elliott argued, Walt Whitman's contribution to 19th century American poetry is seminal and reflects the values of this institution more accurately than the vaguely notable memorial building. Additionally, aligning ourselves formally with the poet will confirm a widely held assumption about our founding and yield a more fluent external representation of the college. So your options are full-time facility dog at USC, the lowercase u at Quinnipiac, or democratic vistas at Whitman College. Oh, my goodness. You worked hard on those. Even the two that are true, you worked hard on. Uh, my goodness. It's a well, labor of love, know, really. Labor of love. I know this is fun. Fun. Um, I would, the, um, um, the facilities dog, you know, and I do know that all the dog, the help dogs for students with all kinds of mental and other disabilities um, has been a, um, interesting issue and opportunity. I don't know about the name that you, that, that dog has, uh, you know, the, the tire biter and all those things, but the fact that those dogs exist is true, and I wouldn't be surprised if the health center added one. Uh, never thought about Quinnipiac having a small letter U, uh, and I'm sitting here resisting getting on Google to see if it does. I am not, <laughs> I am not doing that, I promise. Um, and then the... Um, the third one about naming the building, that language that you wrote, and if you wrote it, it was very fluid and sounded very much like an English faculty member would have written that language. So I'm going to go with this, that the, the, the not truth is the small letter U for Quinnipiac. Okay, so uh, you are uh, correct in discerning out the, uh, the help dog, the full-time facility dog. That is true. Be Professor Beauregard Tirebiter uh, is a full-time employee of the Student Health Center. Uh, the Twitter account um, does not have as many followers as I would have imagined, but I think it's because it's new. Um, but unfortunately, Quinnipiac uh, has uh, lower uh, has really? removed the capitalization from their U. I don't know why. The reason why I thought that this was interesting, I thought that the statement was really funny, that we have no intentions of looking back only forward. Just the <laughs> idea that it's like we would never consider capitalizing our U. I just thought that that was a real... A real hoot. Uh, the fake, so the fake one is the uh, the Whitman College one. So. And you wrote all that great English professor language for it. I did. I did. I tried to. I tried to make it sound like an English professor. So. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, an important an important message out of all this, though, and I wouldn't claim certainly to know everything like this about higher ed, but um, boy, every morning, even though I've been retired for three years, I still read uh, Inside Higher Ed and the Online Chronicle. Because uh, you've got to keep up with all these daily activities and look for trends and patterns and things that will affect practice. So as long as I'm still writing like the New Direction series or speaking or whatever, if you don't keep up with things, you get out of date real fast. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think that – and it's also, uh, you know, to sort of gather the news of the day in higher, higher education is not a uh, – particularly intensive, you know, a time-intensive challenge. It's just sort of a check-in. Um, so. Right, right. Uh, Those are good. 
<laughs> well, thanks. Okay, so our next uh, so our next segment is called Getting to Know Susan. So this uh, so this segment is designed to help listeners understand sort of your background as a person and a professional. Um, although I suppose in the field, your background and your your footprint is uh, more well known than most. All right. So what led you into student affairs and then subsequently into a faculty appointment? Well, I think all of us reflect on that question probably the minute we get into the field, and I certainly have over all my career. Um, I have a story that's like many others. We each have our own narrative, but mine is very similar to many of us who were active as students when we were undergraduates. I was a math major and a chemistry minor and enjoyed that, kind of, but I really liked being in student government, being in a sorority, being an RA being on the president's advisory board. I mean, all the involvement in campus things were exciting, and it was an amazing time in the 60s to be an undergraduate. I was in college 64 to 68 as an undergraduate, and we were working on civil rights issues for women, for people of color, certainly African-American. Um, women had curfews and men didn't. Women had uh, dress codes and men didn't. There were just all kinds of things we didn't think were fair. And so making a change in the world was part of that early baby boomer kind of movement. So I decided I wanted to Actually, I was in the student senate meeting one day, and I realized the dean that was there advising us had a job doing this that she got paid for. And so I approached her about it, and she told me about the career field, like happens to all of us. And I went over then to the College of Education. I had never been there before and talked. went into the counseling department and talked to a faculty member there. And I owe her my life. I mean, she really was kind to sit me down and talk about my interests. And she asked a great question. She said, do you want to work with people one-to-one, -one, helping them with their problems and issues they need to figure out? Or do you want to work with... Um, programs and policies and the overall college experience and campus environment. And I said, oh, I want that. I want whatever all that is. She said, well, that's upstairs in the higher ed program. So I went upstairs, and their faculty member was there in her office and uh, was willing to talk to me. And I was a first-generation student. Um, at least I thought I was. I found out later, which is an interesting story, that I really wasn't. But anyway, I... Um, I uh, was glad she talked to me, and I had no idea that she was someone famous in the field, and it was Melvine Hardee. NASPA has named the Dissertation of the Year Award after her many years ago. She was an ACPA president, and she spent time talking with me, and I loved it. I got into the program. Uh, it was a wonderful experience, and I knew then that I always liked learning, always liked being around ideas and knowledge, and I was just your basic geeky, loved being a student person. Uh, but I also knew to teach at grad school, I really wanted more experience first. I wanted to do this work before I would become a faculty member at some point maybe in my life. Uh, but I had a very scholarly orientation, what we would now probably call a scholar practitioner. So I went into student affairs practice and did residence life and was an associate dean at a small college and then a VP at two colleges. And so over 18 years, I had had a lot of experiences. I interviewed then for a couple presidencies, and that was um, interesting, and I probably could have been a college president, but decided clearly from those interviews that what I really wanted to be then next was a graduate faculty member. I would really enjoy that. And I got a call from Maryland. I was VP at the University of Tampa at the time. Got a call from Maryland that I had been nominated for an opening they had and would I consider it. And um, I ended up 
moving then from being a VP at Tampa to being assistant professors, going through the whole tenure and promotion cycle at Maryland, went there at about 42. And it was like being at a conference every day. It was that conference high of being around amazing people, doing professional work that supported each other. And the Maryland Student Affairs Division is just outstanding. And we got remarkable graduate students. And every day I could hardly wait to get to work for all the good things that we were able to do together. I truly, truly enjoyed it. So I was a faculty member then at Maryland for 25 years. Um, very, very exciting time. And I still am, of course, connected to all those people, still writing reference letters for lots of people. Um, but that's how I got into the work. And the idea of wanting to be a faculty member and dealing with ideas and creating thinking and co-creating um, solutions or strategies to address issues and working with great grad students so they could be leaders in the field doing that too um, was really exciting. So I feel very, very lucky to have had a career that I think mattered and to be working with people who themselves are out there now making a wonderful difference for students. Okay. Thanks so much. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I, I think I can speak for the field when I say uh, we feel lucky that, uh, that you went down that path as well. So uh, <laughs> how are student leadership programs different now than when you began your career? Oh, I think there's just a world of difference, and this is an area certainly that I can see has evolved and we have contributed to. Uh, when I, let me not, I can go back to when I was a student, but let me go back to when I was an early professional. I knew I wanted to do student leadership research and that that would be a focus of how I wanted to contribute. And the leadership programs, if they existed at that time on a campus, were for elite positional leaders. Uh, if there was a retreat, it was for presidents of these some kind of group, or it was for officers of a group, or it was training people already in leadership positions to do them well. But it was less about developing leadership capacity for the individual in whatever field they might go into, and even if they weren't a campus leader of any kind. There just weren't many programs that addressed that at all. So certainly one of the big differences has been the broadening of that to say everybody can learn leadership and every field they go into needs them to exhibit leadership and families and communities need leadership and uh, we've even distinguished leader from leadership so we all need to be engaging in leadership and many people who are then are leaders uh, doing that. But at the time, there were no credit courses for hardly anything in student affairs. Uh, some of the first credit courses back in the 70s were around RA courses. Many places started getting one credit or whatever for an RA course. And then some of the early leadership course credits happened. Maryland was one of those. Um, I did one at Denison. Um, Harvard even had a course. So that started opening that part up. But at the time, um, there was no theoretical base. There was virtually no scholarship on student leadership. The scholarship was all about business and corporate executives. So you had to get books that were related to industry, business, marketing, management. And a management book isn't, isn't always a leadership book. Uh, and very often they didn't even mention the word ethics or things that we would want to be teaching students. So over time, what's really been fun is to see what I would call the professionalization of student leadership studies. So we see um, associations have emerged. Like at Maryland, we started the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs, but also the Journal of, I mean, the Association of Leadership Educators, the um, NASPA in the 
uh, last 10 years establishing all the knowledge communities. Of course, ACPA had always had commissions, and one of those commissions was student activities. So ACPA was doing things with leadership. But the International Leadership Association didn't even start till like 2000. So there are now all kinds of associations. There are professional leadership educator roles where they expect you to know something about leadership. But somebody still can be put into one. You you can have your boss say, hey, we want to give you the leadership portfolio, so next fall start running an emerging leaders in a women's leadership course. And you go, what? I can spell it, but I have no idea beyond that what to do with a leadership course. So we have all kinds of professional development resources now for student affairs people who want to take that on or who are given um, leadership kind of portfolio like the National Leadership Symposium, the Leadership Educator Institute, uh, and more. So there are places one can go and things one now can read like this New Direction series and the Journal of Leadership Studies and the Journal of Leadership Education. And so there's a whole professionalized field. And then there have been models developed like the social change model, the relational leadership model, and other models that apply well to students, like servant leadership, leadership challenge, emotionally intelligent leadership. And those all have bodies of scholarship. So there really now is a deep and rich um, establishment of a field of studies as well as a practical applied uh, set of things to be teaching and exposing students to that didn't exist you know, in the early 70s as this all began. So it really gained momentum, I think, in the 90s. Part of that was how the the United States started differently viewing community and shared problems. Out of the 80s and 90s, it, a lot of these began to be uh, local communities need to solve um, compelling problems and not just wait for the government, for example, to do it. And um, community service and volunteerism and self-help groups all emerged. And all this kind of wrapped together to say that leadership then is a is people together working toward change that they need for themselves and their communities. And community there might mean their campus, their work, their discipline. But the idea is we've got to do it. So let's all step up and be responsible and be the ones addressing these things. So it led to this approach to leadership, which is people working collaboratively together for positive change. And I think that way of thinking was a great fit for the social change model, relational leadership model, others that emerged in that era. So it's really different now. I would say it has professionalized uh, leadership um, development on campuses for all students and hopefully we can get to students in diverse venues in diverse ways and there are challenges in doing that. But it's very different than it was 40 years ago. So uh, the answer to my next question for a lot of people in the field uh, involves you, but uh, what book about leadership most influenced your thoughts on the work? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think I had an anti-reaction to leadership books early on. In the 80s, there were two at the – the, I've mentioned this often, but there were two in the airport on a, on a shelf called Leadership, which really was the business shelf at the airport. One mm-hmm. of them – they both were by the, Robert uh, Ringer. One of them was a book called Looking Out for Number One, and the other was Winning Through Intimidation. <laughs> and just just <laughs> – just mm-hmm. even looking at those books, I thought, this is terrible. This is not how we want people to be with each other. This is not what we want college graduates to be like in viewing how they're supposed to influence other people and help even even be positional leaders. So those were not, not good. Those were very bad books. Um, I did take <laughs> – I'm going to tell you two books. I did take a 
senior year, I took a graduate course. Um, they let me into a graduate class at Florida State in group dynamics. And boy, did that field of study really influence me. Group dynamics for me then became the gateway to how you try to get people working effectively together. And a lot of the philosophies that I hold now about collaboration, about working through conflict, about um, everyone being included and having roles in the group, task roles, relational roles, came out of that group dynamics literature. So even then, Johnson & Johnson had just done one of their first books, and their book was called Joining Together. It's now in its 13th edition. This is mm. still a viable, wonderful book for people to read doing leadership work about collaboration and group work in and that's what leadership is, is working with people in groups. So I think that book really uh, probably set the stage for me for the philosophies that I um, had and went further to develop and write more about. But as I came into me, out of the 80s then, where this, these terrible books like Winning Through Intimidation were out there, um, as I came into Maryland, we were planning the first leadership symposium, and one of my friends said, it's like we're lost in the leadership forest and we can't find the pathways out. Like you could pick up a book any place on leadership, and you didn't know if it was going to be a good one or a bad one or if it was going to have philosophies you liked or didn't. I mean, there, were, there weren't good ways to tell what would be books that would resonate and not. So when Joe Rost in the early 90s, 91, did his uh, first book, or did his big book, it was Leadership for the 21st Century was the name of his book. And he did an exhaustive study. This is a classic book I think anybody would benefit from starting with if they're new to leadership education. But he did a classic book going through how, in his narrative, leadership studies evolved over the years, how it um, uh, morphed to become one of reciprocal kinds of leadership, how he came up then with his own definition of leadership that involved people doing collaborative work, um, not being coercive or punitive, and uh, hopefully for positive change. And I mean, he really did a good job with it, but what it helped me do was find a pathway out of the forest. It helped say this school of thinking, these philosophies of leadership that value collaboration and shared work among people, um, that's the pathway I want to contribute to and follow. Not that other pathways aren't legitimate and that there aren't many views to how leadership can be practiced, evidenced, or what's thought to be, quote, good, but that I wanted to advance this pathway of ethical, collaborative kind of relationships as what we try to develop in students. So that really shaped my thinking that I that went into the work we did, I think, with the social change model, the relational leadership model, and then our leadership identity development research um, actually um, reveal that some of those things or the approaches we take might actually be developmental stages in how you view leadership over time. So um, I see a lot of roots back to the group dynamics book, Johnson and Johnson's Joining Together, and learned a lot from Joe Ross' book. I later would critique Joe Ross' book, too. Um, John Dugan and I did an article um, in certainly pointing out and using a critical theory kind of lens that Joe Ross' perspective on the paradigm shifting from industrial models to post-industrial models was really probably from the perspective of the dominant culture and those in power, because things mm -hmm. did change so much mm -hmm. Those that people holding those perspectives had to change their view. But for women and for many collectivist cultures, uh, communities, that practice shared leadership anyway, nothing changed. It just finally validated that 
that the ways they thought people should be working together were actually of value and were now more recognized from the margins brought into the center. So even dominant culture began to value the things, relational approaches and things that uh, had always been there but had not been seen as leaderly, and now those could be seen as leaderly. Um, so that was the, the influence of the women's movement and other things really helped that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that, that line of thought has certainly continued for, for John Dugan. He's got a, what sounds like a very exciting book coming out next year to, that I feel like is continuing that. That idea. Very exciting, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so when student leadership programs lack efficacy, what has gone wrong? Hmm. Well, and, and, I mean, let me ask you what you mean by lack efficacy. You know, when they're not connecting with their students, when they're not meeting their, lear- you know, when they're not meeting their learning outcomes. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think that, I think that our, our students – you know, in the same way that you mentioned, you were sort of skeptical of, of leadership books and of leadership concepts when you were younger. I think a lot of our students have that approach. So when we're not meeting our students and sort of getting over that hump, what do you think has prevented that from happening? Yeah. Yeah. Let me t- talk a minute more about the word efficacy, too, because I think it can mean two things. Um, mm. When I first, uh, when you first asked the question, I thought of um, efficacy you know, there's there's individual efficacy and there's collective efficacy um, mm. in terms of Bandura's work. So an office might not have efficacy that it can get something done, meaning we don't think we have the capacity or we're not confident we can do this. So if the people in a leadership program feel like they don't have the efficacy to accomplish their charge, like mm. it may be too big, it may not have enough resources, they may not have the partnerships they need across campus, and that the one or two people in an office feel like, we'll never get this kind of leadership development done. We don't have the efficacy we can do this because of, and then you look, you know, examine it to see what resources are missing or their knowledge base or whatever. But the efficacy, as you just described it, is more like effectiveness. It's like uh, mm-hmm. we, we just aren't producing the results that we mm-hmm. are aiming for. We're, we aren't able to show that we're making these kinds of dents. And I think then one, one has to probably map the environment for where is the leadership where are students learning leadership? Where is leadership development occurring? And if one office alone is trying to do it um, with their programs and then overall data isn't showing it's having a big impact, the realization probably should be there. My first thought would be the realization is they're not the only office responsible for leadership. It belongs everywhere. It is Mm. everybody's responsibility. And how do we get more intentionality around leadership development happening in the residence halls, in academic majors, through clubs and organizations, and recreation and sports, and identity-based groups? You know, leadership, I'm, I'm reminded of the the African parable that sticks tied together in a bundle are unbreakable. And I think we have a lot of sticks out there. we got lots of things going on in different places. Uh, but the things that tie them together are, belong every place. One of those is um, multiculturalism, diversity, inclusion, equity, social justice. I mean, that thread needs to be every place across the whole campus, not just in the multicultural office. And leadership, to me, is another one of those threads. It belongs everywhere. It isn't just the offices to do. So um, 
people like like some of our listeners today in the student affairs office trying to do leadership uh, might be well served to say how can we get more of this happening in more places and some campuses have done things like form a leadership uh, development council or advisory board or a coordinating group and, and bring together people trying to do leadership work so they have each other to talk to and share resources and realize they're all doing this um, leadership involvement is a high impact practice it has lots of impact on other th good things that can happen in college so uh, academic disciplines are having to develop it and show their accrediting agencies that they do and maybe we need to partner with them a little bit better than we do and Corey C. Miller's work on competencies helps there because those academic disciplines often have to show evidence of competency building and competencies like teamwork uh, communication and other kinds of skills are all leadership skills also. So I think there are, there are many ways to map the environment and see if the leadership people are talking with each other. If not, how can somebody be a catalyst to bring those folks together? Um, how can you listen better to students to find out why they aren't participating if it's a participation question? Maybe the programs and services need to change. Um, so I think there are lots of assessments, certainly, is the first step there. What, how do you assess what's needed, what's not going well, for whom, uh, who's being left out of anything that you are doing now? Uh, we found in our multi-institutional study of leadership research that the platforms that one offers for leadership may not matter as much, retreats, workshops, courses, lecture series. The, the platforms don't matter as much as the content in them and what you're doing in them. So are you doing really high-impact things in these workshops and retreats, uh, like teaching people to handle controversy with civility or dealing with uh, difficult dialogues or active listening skills or things that really give the students the capacity to be better at leadership. Um, I think another opportunity point is um, group work on campuses. Lots, almost every student gets involved in groups somewhere or other, and almost nobody teaches students good group work skills. So I would encourage a leadership office to look at being the place where you learn how to work well in teams and groups, maybe even teaching that in orientation classes. Uh, but all these are leadership things, and if we, if we do a whole lot of things that are the elements of building more effective leadership and then label it as leadership, I think we will see more impact. Um, I think your question, your question is a good one, and I do like dividing it into the two parts. One is if we don't have efficacy, we can do it because we're understaffed, under-resourced, under-prepared as professionals. That's a whole different ballgame than if what we're doing isn't isn't seeming to produce results. And then that mm -hmm. takes probably a bigger assessment. Okay, so uh, what scholarship is emerging in the field that needs to be incorporated into student leadership programs? So what, you know, what are you seeing that's new out there that, that is really valuable for folks to be, to be adding in? Yeah, that's certainly another good question. Um, I'm not sure I would say so much is new as we need to be more intentional about it. I, I, several things come to mind, uh, but I think lots of programs still are doing the things they just like or think are good, but they're not based in research or evidence. I mentioned uh, the um, 
multi-institutional study of leadership, and MSL has identified five or six high-impact practices that really do make a difference in developing leadership outcomes, like engaging in discussions around dialogue skills and teaching students dialogue so that when they're dealing with difficult topics, they really can listen, express their own point of view, um, do social perspective taking and see the point of view of the other person. But if we were to teach some of these high impact skills, they have a great uh, benefit then to leadership. Mentoring certainly is one of those experiences, service learning. Um, so there are a number of high impact skills. And yet we don't always weave those into the intentional design of our programs. But I do think um, we really should get people doing lots more in group development and group dynamics. We need to teach people about engaging in leadership, not just being a leader. Certainly it all starts with the self and with the individual. So we have to start with the individual seeing they have the uh, capacity to develop leadership and that they can learn to do it better in all kinds of contexts. But there's still a whole different animal when you look at the group itself. And we don't do as much with making sure groups are good environments where leadership is developing, that all members are involved and included. Uh, the same four executive board members may be running the whole group or organization and never involving mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. So we've got to do a lot more with teaching group dynamics, teaching group development, teaching community development, coalition building. Um, as well as other things like intersectionality. Um, you know, if we're helping individuals develop it, they're not monolithic one identity. They have multiple identities. But in, instead of dealing with them just as a woman or just as a man or just as white or black or uh, gay or straight, we need to look at all those together. What is, it, what is leadership like for a black female um, lesbian, you know, what what does that mean in her expression of herself in terms of her leadership practice? So there's a mentoring and advising and coaching needed in some of that complexity. But I, if I were to make a big pitch of things I think we should do better next, it would be to bring in a lot of attention on how organizations are environments where students can learn to effectively practice collaborative leadership with each other and the dynamic of the group needs some intentionality and um, people need to see how they influence that dynamic. So it would be to do a whole lot more with the group development, organizational development dimensions of our work. Mm. Okay, great. So you are known throughout the field as an exceptional mentor. As a matter of fact, several of your mentees have spoken of your impact on their personal and professional lives on this podcast. So what are some thoughts you can share on engaging in meaningful uh, mentoring relationships? Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> that, makes, that touches me that they say those things. Um, I really, it's, it's all reciprocal. I mean, anybody gains in a mutual relationship like that. I think I think a key thing for me has always been reciprocity and um, the co-creating. I used that word earlier. I, I don't. I don't. Some people um, call someone a mentor that's really a role model. It might be somebody that they look mm. up to and admire, and that's very empowering for that person. But that's not a mentor. I think a mentor is actively engaged with the person or people they are trying to help develop and give them opportunities and invite them into um, projects the mentors working on, like any, any project that came up that I had an opportunity to deal with. And so many of the things you read off at the beginning about me 
being on the ACPA NASPA Competencies Task Force or when I was president of CAS or um, when I was on the Social Change Model Ensemble as that project was evolving over two years, I always um, brought students into that or we had a shadow group back on campus. Like We had five or six of us working on the Social Change Model back at Maryland. As the ensemble was also developing it, I would volunteer us to take on tasks that the project needed. Mm. And so that group would meet weekly and it, one of them turned into Tracy Tyree's dissertation on the socially responsible leadership scale. But it was mm. by, by bringing people into real opportunities that were going to have an outcome, a product, a policy, or a, uh, a book, or um, my leadership classes um, at Maryland. I, every spring I taught a student leadership educator course, and we certainly learned a lot together about leadership, but we always took on a big project, like let's develop a, bin, uh, a facilitator guide for a book that, like when Nance and Tim and I first came out with a leadership exploring leadership book, one of my classes then wrote the first uh, facilitator guide. And when we realized we needed the something better for students to read on the social change model, the class wrote the first Leadership for a Better World book. Um, mm. The students in that class actually did the chapters of that book, and I became their publisher then, their editor and their publisher. Even after the class was over, we had to still work together because it wasn't, of course, going to be done completely by then. Um, but when you, when you have real good opportunities and you bring people into them, they get well-mentored, I think, in that process. So I think a good mentor has got to share share their power and in this case if you have powers because you have you've been given an opportunity you can share that opportunity then with talented other people and bring along their careers and their thinking and their development uh, by that sharing and I think good faculty do that um, so I, I was it was really wonderful because then we knew we were creating things that were needed in the field because there just wasn't anything out there so I, I appreciate that um, I had that opportunity, and we still are collaborators in lots of things. Okay, so we are going to transition uh, to our next segment, which is called Six Big Leadership Questions. So uh, my first question, and uh, all of these I would describe as you know, roughly unanswerable, uh, <laughs> but uh, pra practitioners and scholars alike debate the merits of establishing a singular definition of leadership, uh, and, and folks who have been on this podcast have sort of weighed in on different sides of this. So is there value on, in, in settling on one definition for leadership? I think there's value in knowing one should have a philosophy or an approach to leadership. And that philosophy may have values and elements in it that you want to be sure are the messages you're teaching students and developing them to have some comfort with. But it may not be one particular theory. Uh, and then again, in some cases, there are existing models or theories that may well represent those philosophies or values. Like the social change model, it works very well on many campuses. There are also some who have started with the social change model and then tweaked it to fit their context better, like faith-based institutions that might add some concepts around faith or spirituality to it. And then it really fits what they resonate with and what they their students can hear and find comfort in. So I don't believe that there's only one theory or one definition, but I think a campus should have at least an approach, a perspective, you know, like a belief system. We believe that leadership is, uh, and and be able to identify some some dimensions of that. Um, I do think that there are there 
are some core kinds of definitions that have elements to them. So one might want to be able to say it's how people are doing something to accomplish what. You know, if that was a just a basic concept of leadership, using that framework we've taken in some of our uh, writings to talk about um, leadership people do, is people doing working effectively together to accomplish positive change uh, ethically and relationally together. So that speaks to collaboration, ethics, positive change. Um, so you should be able to describe what approach you, you value, but there are multiple models that might do that. Uh, I think you can even use multiple theories for different dimensions of an experience where emotionally intelligent leadership may be really helpful in some um, scaffolding in a program, but social change model may be more helpful in another. But they're all in the same school of thinking. Okay, so uh, we, we've touched on it a little bit, um, so I wanted to kind of circle around. So this is the 20th anniversary of the social change model, and it's been a topic of discussion throughout the year and will continue to be prominently discussed at LEI in December. But um, while y'all were in development of that project, did you imagine this kind of impact? I mean, it's a, a, there's an amazing consensus around around uh, around that model, and it's, you know, the, so just sort of wanted your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think we hoped it would have an impact. I don't know that we ever thought about for how long. Um, the guidebook was initially a product of that um, Eisenhower grant, and many people used the guidebook for years. And um, I have to give credit to the National Clearinghouse for Leadership Programs here because the the as the guidebook was, uh, let me back up, as you're – as our listeners probably know, when you, when you get a grant, you have to have deliverables from the grant of some kind, particularly like an Eisenhower grant. So the guidebook was one of those deliverables, and they're given away free initially to meet the challenge of dissemination. Well, as the thousands of them that were given away were starting to run out, we realized that to keep this going, we needed a a sustainable way to keep the model being exposed to new generations of leadership educators as well as students. So the National Clearinghouse stepped up and said to the Astons, uh, Sandy and Lena Aston, who were the PIs on the grant, can we um, be a place that keeps disseminating that and work toward other deliverables from the grant, like a um, um, training activities and, and other kinds of things. And they said, we're thrilled if you would do that. That would be great. So the Clearinghouse took on running off more copies of that guidebook and then making them available just at cost, not for any profit. And the Clearinghouse also started doing things like a website where you could post activities and started promoting programs at conferences. And then my class and, um, I, my class and I did the Leadership for a Better World book. And so I think having... Having a place like the Clearinghouse that tried to keep promoting the sustainability of disseminating the model and hoping then people kept using it, and then the people themselves, practitioners themselves, started doing programs and more workshops and writings, and it became the base of a lot of research. And Tracy did the um, instrument that measured it in 1999, so people had an instrument they could use. Then articles and evidence started coming out. And But it really was clear to me that, that we had to intentionally engage in ways to um, validate the model, test it, try it in different contexts, get more print material and scholarship out there about it, and it continues to thrive because I think that happened through the Clearinghouse. 
Okay. So uh, to sort of continue on the, the topic of social change, next month a new edition of Leadership for a Better World is going to be released. So what new content should we be excited about in the new edition? Oh, yeah, this is exciting. I think the first edition we took some risks with and um, that we decided we're going to make some changes in. And also probably the I would think one of the best um, – changes for the second edition is that it's been redefined based on research and evidence that have come out in the 10 years since the first edition and the whatever, how many is, eight or nine years since the first edition. Because the um, MSL study actually showed us what makes a difference and, ta- and shows what concepts, if people learn them, they'll develop better capacity. So we were able to weave research from MSL and other sources into the book uh, knowing that this would matter if people uh, saw this differently. So um, research is woven into each of the chapters, each of the C chapters. And then um, we reorganize the flow of the book because research showed that really the way this develops is individuals develop themselves first, then the groups that they're in and how they function in groups, and then groups and individuals um, work more effectively together in communities. The individual looks at their role as a community member, but also how can their groups form coalitions with others to accomplish more community-based change, and community here meaning like a, cl- a campus community or their local community. So we have reorganized the flow to go back to the from the individual Cs to the group Cs to the citizenship C. Um, we also in the book have a, a rubrics for each of the Cs. So one of my classes developed actual rubric measurement guides for each for someone to see if they're not at all accomplished in it or quite well accomplished in that C. And I think that'll help people do self-assessment as well as an instructor or a group advisor look at um, those Cs um, effectively. There's student stories in the book. Um, We also have made a big hit to have more emphasis on two dimensions of the original model that I think got less attention than they deserve. One is that, yes, the model is about social change. That is what it's for. And there's a whole chapter on social change. Uh, But it is also about engaging in socially responsible leadership. So even if the outcome is not social change, uh, you could be making widgets or shoes in a factory, but how does that factory engage in socially responsible leadership? How do the people uh, leading in that factory, do so in a way that's inclusive and ethical and responsible in the local community and concerned for the welfare and well-being of others, and how can that leadership itself be practicing these principles? So we've tried to play out both of those dimensions. And then also, uh, largely in our leadership education practice, we do the development of the individual as our primary work. Individual development is what we do. We put on retreats and individuals come. Uh, we don't. We aren't doing as good a job of developing groups, as I mentioned earlier. So we need to emphasize group development, group capacity building, group efficacy, and we need to do better at developing community efficacy, community planning. Um, in one of our other research studies we did that turned into the leadership identity development research, we had a number of uh, participants in our grounded theory that were seniors in ODK or mortarboard. And these, a couple of these seniors said, I wish I had known – 
some of these other student leaders from all around this huge campus earlier because we could have done so much more together. Like I'm here because I'm active in a fraternity, but my friend's here active in RHA in the residence halls, and another friend here has uh, been the head of BSU. If we had known each other sooner, we could have done a lot more forming coalitions among our organizations for things the campus needs to address. So how do we develop more community development so those coalitions can form? How do we reorganize some of the ways student leaders even meet each other? If the first time these students are meeting is their senior year, we've really lost an opportunity. So what if we had councils of sophomore leaders from organizations and junior leaders? If they just met each other, we would find a lot more community capacity development building in them. So I, I would add that as a... Um, um, dimension we in in the book we do emphasize those dimensions as also important but i think it has to also influence how we develop our leadership programs and then another really nice feature is um, there is a companion facilitators guide it's called the social change model uh, and it's a facilitator guide for people using the book or just for people who want lots of activities and um, experiential opportunities if they're teaching the model in the co-curriculum. So this will be out in February. Kristen uh, Salenti, Skendel, Daniel Ostick, and Wendy and I, and a whole bunch of amazing authors have written lots of activities and designed experiences that would help develop the model. So I think the book itself will be useful, but I also think the facilitator guide will be great. Mm-hmm. Okay. The book is out in November, by the way. Yeah, yeah, really excited. Um, so uh, maybe this is this is something that this is certainly an idea that I've been grappling with as we've been really reconceptualizing uh, our uh, our deliverables for uh, for leadership here at George Washington University. But there seems to be a prominent thought in the field that our work needs to be grounded in one theory. And as someone who has helped develop multiple concepts of leaderships, uh, multiple concepts of leadership, do models compete with one another? So. In other words, is it best practice to build a departmental vision behind one model, say social change or relational leadership, or to incorporate multiple lines of thought? You know, I probably addressed this even in the last the, one of those earlier questions you asked me. I'll, I'll repeat myself a little bit that I think it's good to adopt a perspective uh, that's values-based, you know, that has beliefs in it. Um, but I think you can teach multiple models and welcome diverse models uh, that fit those core values like inclusion and ethics and that kind of thing. Um, One model makes it easier. If one model does fit the campus culture and the campus values, then you have an easier pathway to scaffold the elements of that model and build a more complex program. But I think you still can build a complex program around your values and principles, and then models help make those come alive. I think one of the challenges to all of us is to add developmental complexity to what we're teaching by the use of any theory or model. Uh, By that I mean um, one could say we need listening skills, um, but what does that look like at a novice level all the way up to what does it look like at a very complex critical thinking, challenging the assumptions of what you're hearing and what you think you're hearing level. So how do we add complexity to the skill building across developmental stages of any of the elements? Uh, I don't think you need one theory. Um, I think you do need an approach or a, a perspective. And if a theory is a good representation of that for the context of the campus or office, uh, I think that makes it an easier pathway to organize programs and practices and assessment. Hmm. 
Okay, so I know you're really excited about the New Directions for Student Leadership series. Uh, so what unique contents and tools are available through that platform? Well, I think it's um, the New Directions series, and Wiley and Jesse Bass have a whole bunch of them, you know, New Directions for Student Services and Higher Education, and they're supposed to bring about timely information in an approachable way that is practical with examples and good practices and recommendations for practice. So they should be more than just the the academic study of a topic. You know, it's, it's more mm -hmm. like, and here's three or four examples in a case study and five recommendations you might try. So they're supposed to be more practical and applied. And I think that's really good for leadership educators. We all like to get things that we can mm -hmm. get our hands on and actually use. Uh, but they are certainly in print format. They're online or in print format. Um, but they're practical. We've already we've published now a year and a half's worth of issues. Um, so the topics have been, um, and they're all focused on leadership. We all, we've also tried to do a lifespan approach. Well, at least a, a high school, a youth leadership approach, high school and college. We haven't we haven't wanted leadership educators to keep seeing leadership as only when someone springs at 18 into the college environment, but mm -hmm. that they've also developed leadership before that, and that things are happening in their life that are teaching them about leadership. So, And we'd like to influence leadership in high school as well. So it has a focus on both dimensions. But the topics have been on innovative learning methods for leadership that gets into like e-portfolios and integrated learning. Uh, we have issues on ethical leadership, on leadership through recreation and sports. Uh, motivational readiness for leadership, looking at growth mindsets. How do we teach people that to have a growth mindset, that they can learn leadership, they can be better at this, instead of thinking it's fixed and that you have all you're ever going to have. Uh, there's also issues of leadership development through service learning. There, there are, those two are often combined, and leadership is assumed to be an outcome of service learning, but how does it happen through service learning? So uh, Wendy and uh, Jennifer Pigza in this issue have really looked at what, how does leadership develop through service learning? How can that be more intentional? We have one coming out shortly on digital leadership, on gender perspectives, on multicultural perspectives of leadership, uh, one on student organizations, because uh, as you've heard me say throughout our own conversation, I think that's critical. Also mm -hmm. on leadership readiness in, in, through the career process, looking at internships and uh, co-op and a variety of those dimensions. And then once in the works on advising, coaching, and mentoring for leadership. So we'll, we will have one on student activism and leadership. And we hope to then have timely topics that people in doing this work would find useful in shaping their programs or designing intentional practices. And we're eager, I say we, I'm the senior editor and Kathy Guthrie is the associate editor. She's at Florida State. And we would welcome proposals or we would uh, welcome people who have ideas that they say, why don't you develop an issue on this topic? I need that. You know, we, we would look to to build on the series by what's needed in practice. But I'm really excited to see the number of leadership centers that have subscribed to the series. And just about everybody can get uh, chapters out of all the issues by your online library subscriptions like to Wiley Online that probably your library already has. So log into the library and go to New Directions for Student Leadership, um, and you would find these issues. Yeah, no, it's great to, it's great to have a resource that can respond uh, that can respond quickly in the way that New Directions does. So that's a a, a great resource for responding to uh, you know to contemporary events. So. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I am just thrilled that that 
they were interested in doing this and Josie Bass was willing to take it on. I think it assures, at least in my mind, the scholarship will continue and focus on student leadership. Hmm. Okay, so uh, for the last question from our six big leadership questions, your frequent collaborator, friend, and former student, Dr. Wendy Wagner, came on the podcast a few months ago and mentioned the unique ability you have for predicting future trends. Wendy said, and I quote, Susan sees the future. So with all that pressure, <laughs> can you share some thoughts on where we're headed with student leadership programs? <laughs> of course, that doesn't mean I can do it well, but um, I always have liked scanning the environment for trends and things that I think will become themes and will become movements. And, you know, it means like listening to NPR and uh, reading a couple news magazines and taking in lots of information. Um, So I really like doing that in my student affairs life, you know, what's going to be influencing students in the future and their families and higher education. So I probably applied it more to that than even student leadership. But I I do think that um, we will be looking at, as I said, I've, I continue to say about the group uh, development of leadership organizations and groups. How can we get them to be inclusive, ethical, thriving environments where leadership can develop? Uh, I think we'll be looking at more global perspectives in leadership. We're toying around a lot with that now, but there are not a lot of people that know what that means. And people like Denny Roberts and Tara Igberg, I mean, there are a bunch of people, um, Marietta uh, Leadership Program, that are looking at what are the leadership perspectives and competencies students need to deal in a global environment and how is leadership viewed globally. There's a lot of studies on that, but it's mostly around business management or political functions. So I think we need more work in that global perspective. Um, We certainly want students having that point of view. Uh, Critical perspectives on leadership, we've been teaching some of the same theories. Even the social change model now is 20 years old. How do we critique it? How do we really pinch it and push it and change it and make sure it stays relevant. And Dugan's book on uh, leadership theory from a critical perspective is going to be really teaching people, I think, how to apply critical thinking strategies or critical strategies, not critical thinking, but critical meaning examining assumptions and to all the theories we teach so that we make sure they're relevant to uh, all students, not just some students. And I think that will be a, a a theme that we'll be doing more critical kind of look at that work. I also think that we've got to find ways to do more effective academic partnerships. The institution, uh, you know, higher ed is really under siege in in terms of public um, confidence and public perspective, and we're going to have to do a lot more work with academic partners accomplishing some of the outcomes we claim that we offer uh, to students coming, to their families, to the community. Uh, and again, Corey's work with competencies helps here because faculty can relate to the idea of competencies and that we might need to advance those in more effective ways. I think these days, too, we're going to be looking at what's the leadership outcomes of all this activism and protest. This is a, another really needed, you know, it's like Black Lives Matters, a uh, tremendous movement and an important movement. And how... What are the strategies to accomplish social change that that movement's trying to accomplish? So how do we teach students social change movements and their part in advancing, making things better instead of resisting because it's fearful or uh, whatever other many reasons that people resist social movements? So I think those things are happening, um, and we'll you know we'll these 
protests and activism was going to be with us for a long time. I'm, I think either, well, we get into presidential elections, and we know we're going to, we have a lot of work to do with how that those the dialogue and the election is causing and influencing so much of this fractured kind of discussion. So if campuses can't figure out how to have some of these discussions with civility and build an inclusive environment, I don't know how we expect the world to. So we better be dealing with this effectively and modeling it on our campus. Hmm. Okay. Well, thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks so much to Dr. Susan Comavez, a person to whom we all in student leadership work owe a tremendous debt, and we've all been made better by your work, as have our students. So it was truly an honor to share this time with you. Um, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Molly. Yeah, absolutely. So you can connect with uh, with Susan on Twitter, at Susan Comavez, and you can get more information about the knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash lead, on Twitter, at NASPSLPKC, on Instagram, at at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, that's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we would love to hear uh, about your program. So please shoot an email to NASPA Leader Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.